From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we'll catch up with WECT reporter Michael Pratz. He's been following ongoing potential legal troubles for New Hanover County Chair Julia Olson Bozeman. We'll also take a deep dive into True Colors, the contentious Wilmington brewery that has overcome a tough couple of years to release its first beer. But first, WHQR's own Rachel Keith sits down with Florence Warren, a veteran teacher and advocate, to talk about her history here in Wilmington and the work she's doing today. I'm Rachel Keith, here with my guest Florence Warren. Florence, to start, where did you grow up? I grew up in Wilmington in a housing project called Hillcrest. We lived at 915 South 13th Street, right close to 13th and Dawson. For many, many years growing up there, I thought my parents owned that apartment, that house, because they took so much pride in the yard, in the apartment, and everything. But I grew up poor, but not knowing I was poor. So I feel like I had a prosperous uh, youth growing up, even in a housing unit. Why did you grasp on to wanting to become an educator? Were you instilled with that love at a young age of learning and teaching? Definitely. As a student of Williston Senior High School, I saw so much in the teachers that I that taught me, in addition to the other teachers, that I said, hey, this is what I really want to be. But I think it was God who tapped me and said, you're going to be a teacher uh, because I love it. I, I still love it. It's something I, I think I just love giving back to people, to students, and it's just a, a passion of mine. So I saw a lot of the teachers uh, at Williston. I would hang around the school after hours to help or do things for the teachers. And I just felt like, hey, this is me. But I truly feel like this was something that God says, this is your your thing, Florence. You, you, you got it, you know. You mentioned at that Community Relations Advisory Committee meeting that you were one of the first five black graduates of UNCW, and I wanted to right. get that story. Yes, uh, graduated from Williston Senior High School, all black, in 1963. My goal was to go to A&T to take up or to learn how to become a physical therapist, and I also really wanted to become a medical doctor. However, because my parents did not have the money for me to go ahead and matriculate somewhere. I said, okay, we've got the college here. Let me just try to see if I can enter there. And so I applied. And when I applied, I also applied for the North Carolina Teachers, I think it was called North Carolina Teachers Scholarship, the one that they would pay your tuition each year, but for four years, after you are employed as a teacher, that would take care of the payment for your tuition. So I uh, did that not knowing that I could, 
not getting advice from anyone. I did that, and I did receive scholarships from other organizations. Well, I knew at the time I applied that there weren't many blacks at all, maybe two or three at that time. In fact, Ernest Fullwood happened to have been the first one to graduate from UNCW at the time, Wilmington College. So there were five of us that enrolled the year I did, the next year after Ernest uh, was there. And it was a challenge. It was truly a challenge. I was the only female oftentimes in the science curriculum because I entered the science curriculum program for education. Oftentimes, I was the only female, as I mentioned, but of course, you know, I was only black. We would go on field trips. I would feel not prepared physically as well as mentally. However, the most of the guys in there would help me out wherever we were going or wherever we went. And I did appreciate that. I, um, I did encounter one incident that made me feel like the person was truly prejudiced, and that was in the education program. That was with Dr. Hulon. Dr. Hulon would wait and ask me the question last after asking others. One question he asked that I remember is that the student, this particular student, uh, maintained or retained, rather, his grade level for two or three years. I think it was in the seventh grade. And then he was asking if we should socially promote him or retain him. Well, he asked me, and I was the last one as usual, and I gave the, the, gave the comment that we should find, especially I think he referred to reading, his reading level was very low. I said we should find some material that's of his interest, such as auto mechanics or whatever. If we couldn't find the resource, create the resource like a comic book that would teach him how to read and improve his reading before we move him up to another grade level. And so after my comment and my support of teaching him until he learns, Dr. Hulon said, well, this was a black boy. And the way he said it made me feel like, hey, this man is not right. And lo and behold, <laughs> a few years later, I resigned from teaching because I wanted to run for the Board of Education. I resigned because I felt that I would be prepared if I won and I was not in a position of teaching at the time, which you could not teach and maintain that position if you won that elected position. So I left that employment and went to work. I worked for the city of Wilmington with community development and then later on with Girls Club and then went back to teaching. But I ran for the Board of Education. Dr. Hulon was running at the same time. I did not win. He did not win, but I got more votes than Dr. Hulon, so I felt good about that. <laughs> I felt good about that. So it sounds like your experience was mainly positive, except for some issues with Dr. Hulon. Or 
is that a, a fair characterization of your time at UNCW? I would say basically, yes. A group of us did try to do some things to make some changes, but we didn't move those changes. For instance, we tried out for the cheering squad, a cheerleaders rather, and we didn't make it because our mode and method of cheering at Williston was not like theirs, uh, more acrobatic type of things. Uh, but we tried out just to say, hey, we're interested in being a part of this university. So here we are. But uh, basically everything was okay, but it was a struggle. And you said we, so did you have a, a couple of friends? There were a couple of friends. In fact, my cousin and then uh, Luciane O'Dell and a few others at that time. Mm -hmm. And so you graduate from UNCW. And did you get your first job teaching going back to Williston exactly. High School? Went right back to Williston Senior High School, all black, and taught the first year. And then during that summer, we were told the school was closed. And that's when the teachers had a choice of selecting the high school they wanted to uh, work at. So I selected New Hanover since it was in walking distance and it was close anyway to Williston Senior High School, but it was uh, right there in walking distance of my house. And I want to know about that transition. We've heard from a lot of Williston graduates that this was closing and this special place was done. I mean, did you feel that way too? How did you feel? Definitely. I felt just like there was a death, a death in the family, uh, and we didn't have a funeral for it. And we we didn't have any recourse at all. And we knew if we attempted to do something, it probably would make the situation worse. So we went on with what was given to us, which was not pleasant at all. And yeah, let's talk about New Hanover. And you're a science teacher. Is that what you That's ultimately right. became? I became a biology teacher at Williston and then transitioned to New Hanover in biology. And that first year, I had many, I cannot remember the principal's name, but I had many parents that would come to the door, and I was standing outside the door to greet the students, who would outwardly say that they were not having their child taught by the end teacher, okay? So I maintain a smile, but so angry inside because of the outwardness, outward comments of some parents. And so they would go to the office and have the principal change their child to another teacher. That was okay. Because the students that I did have, I thoroughly enjoyed them and appreciated them and have connections with a lot of them right now. So the parents who outwardly made those gestures and comments were satisfied by the principal instead of the principal accepting me as an individual and not as a black teacher, he was able to transfer the child to another teacher. 
And what did your classroom look like in those first couple of years? I mean, did you have a blended classroom with whites and blacks or did the white students get moved to the white teachers? It was blended. Uh, Very few blacks at the time the first year. But as the years progressed, yes, I've had more. But it was blended, and they were well-behaved and, and respected me. And I love that about the students. And how long were you at New Hanover? I was at New Hanover from 69 through 72, if I'm not mistaken. And I left there then because we were starting a night school program with Carter Newsom, and I wanted to join that team and became the job coordinator for the night school program. And I learned through that August New Hanover County City of Wilmington Community Relations Advisory Committee, I mean, you had a 35-year career in education in this county, Mm -hmm. and I just wanted to get the sense of when you started to when you left, and what were some of the larger changes that you saw or what you've experienced through your life? Okay, when I started in 67, being at Williston Senior High, we were, I think our method of training or teaching students was more consistent, and we didn't do a lot of changing of curriculum or programs, okay? And the students seemed to learn, and it was a continuum of that. However, uh, as I transitioned back into the system with the Williston Ninth Grade Center, then Williston Middle School, each year it seemed as though the superintendents and their team came up with at least three or four different programs to try in the system, but not giving us enough time to see if those programs worked. And so now I'm hearing that is a constant thing of the Board of Education. Try this today. Then seems like tomorrow you want to try this and not even seeing or giving enough time to see if a program works. And it burns teachers out. And the other factor, too, was that the class load, the class size itself, uh, was too large. With students not behaving as well as you want them to behave to learn. And like I told, uh, and I say, if I could have gotten students to behave better, I still probably would be teaching. Because I love it, but... I said, as loud as I can get, as big as I am, I could not get them to control their voices, to stay quiet and listen. Uh, So I said, hey, I I need to get out before I cause harm to someone. (laughs) What do you think is the issue right now that student behavior is somewhat getting out of control when you didn't have these issues in the past. Do you have some ideas as to what is happening in our community? I think if all teachers were on the same page about loving the students and letting the students feel their love, then a lot of the behavior 
negative behavior would stop. We could turn it around. But we don't have that. Then another thing is that in some classrooms, unfortunately, teachers allow for anything to go. And that means that the teaching to me is missing. So when they come to my classroom and I have regulations and rules that they must follow and they can go to yours and you don't have that, you don't maintain that, that really causes problems. Another thing that I I fear is that our parents of the students need to be kind of trained as to how to be a parent uh, so that they can discipline their child at home, which would help us in the school. I can't say that they don't know, but I think they need some help because it seems like they don't give the child enough time and attention to say, hey, this is not what we do and how we do it in public and in school. So we got some help from the teachers in the school system and the parents and, of course, the community. Nowadays, people in the community say, I can't discipline that child because the parent will say something, leave my child alone. However, sometimes we have to step outside of the box and say, baby, we don't do that. And it's a way that we say it to the child. Uh, so there are three folds, you know, the parent, the community, and the school. And it seems like trust is an issue and consistency is what I'm hearing from you. Yes, that's right. So what has happened to the trust, do you think? I think we don't trust anyone. We don't trust ourselves, too, sometimes. But we've seen so much of violent actions and reactions to to small things, the road rage kind of things, or uh, just people deciding to do whatever they want to do, how they want to do it. It just becomes kind of scary. You know, you, you think about stepping outside your door. You don't know if somebody's going to come by and just shoot, and you get the bullet. But I just feel it's just a praying time, and we need to make right decisions and and help each other so that we can eliminate the distrust. And referring back to that meeting, it looked like you also hinted to the schools becoming resegregated almost. Is that was that your impression that was also contributing to some of the issues right. that you saw? Yes. And if it cannot, we need to find a way how to balance the race uh because we have more black students in certain schools than in others. And I think that's unfair to the school system, unfair to the school, and unfair to the students and the parents. We need to find a way, whatever it is, to balance those ra- the races so that all students can get a fair education. And behind that, do you feel like poverty is also a part of that issue? It is. It is. It is. Because it seems like, I think New Hanover County 
basically made decisions in the school system to kind of house the students based upon their poverty levels. And before we end today, I did want to ask you, you know, what you're doing now and how you're living your life. I am trying to stay as active as I can, basically with community organizations, some of them working indirectly with students. I have tutored some. I probably will get back to that after I finished uh, a health situation. But I am involved in community organizations, and I like to still share my opinions when it's worth sharing. And then on that note, I wanted to end with your message to the community, our education community. You've had so much experience in all of our educational systems here, UNCW, the K through 12 system. What's your message? I would wish for us to find ways to entice and encourage minority individuals to become teachers because they desire to become a teacher and stay with it long enough to see some results, some positive results, and encourage other minorities to go in. Uh, I find that the students identify with their own in their own way. Uh, So they learn better that way. So I would pray and hope that we find more minorities teachers uh, that would want to come here to Wilmington and teach at the various schools. I also would hope that we would have a board of education and a superintendent and administrative level people who would see the need of that and, and just go forth to find those teachers any way we can. But I feel like changing the environment of the teacher selection would make a change in our students. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Florence. You're quite welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Later in the show, we'll have a deep dive on Wilmington's true colors. But first, after a quick break, WECT journalist Michael Pratz joins us to talk about his latest reporting. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. I'm joined now by WECT reporter and friend of the show, Michael Pratz. Michael, thanks for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So this week you had a follow-up on the issues around New Hanover County Chair Julia Olson Bozeman and her former legal client. So before we get into that, I want to go back to the beginning of the story and give people some frame for it. Basically, a couple years ago, uh, a, a gentleman named Gary Holyfield Uh, lost his daughter in a car accident that happened on I-140. He hired Julia Olson Bozeman 
to represent him in a uh, the first filing that they uh, that they filed was against an insurance company. This is pretty standard. You typically in a in a death situation, wrongful death, something like that. You typically hire an attorney uh, to go after the insurance company to uh, pay out. That's why you have insurance. Uh, unfortunately, insurance companies don't like to pay out the money, uh, so typically it does require getting an attorney involved. Uh, Miss Bozeman was able to secure $30,000 for Gary Holyfield uh, in the loss of his daughter. That money was paid out, and uh, she took uh, one-third of that, which is a standard fee for an attorney. So she got $10,000. Uh, Mr. Holyfield got 20000 However, he wasn't exactly done. He, so uh, Holyfield has wanted two things since this accident happened, and he, he stood by this, and it's not about the money for him. He wanted guardrails installed along I-140 because this was a tragic accident. Uh, basically, the car flipped over into a culvert, and it was it was full of water. And that's uh, that's how his daughter and another, uh, I believe it was his stepchild, passed away. Uh, it wasn't it was due to the crash, but it was uh, drowning basically. Uh, so he wanted guardrails installed here to prevent future deaths from occurring in this location. So that was number one. Number two, he said the money, he wanted enough money to get two nice headstones for uh, his children. That was that was it. He wasn't trying to get rich out of this. And $20,000, mind you, would have been more than enough to get two nice headstones. Um, however, Julius said, if you want to get these guardrails installed, we're going to have to sue the state and basically fight for you to get guardrails installed there. First of all, uh, we can talk about the questionable uh, method of getting guardrails installed. Typically, you can petition the DOT. Yeah, I was going to say that seems like um, just a very bad system. But okay, so the underlying issue here is that Julia took the money and then sort of broke off communication. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Holyfield agreed to pay her $20,000 to file this further lawsuit to get these guardrails installed. And then she went radio silent on him. He uh, he didn't hear from her for several months, um, and after about mm, 16, 18 months, he finally came to WECT, uh, and I was the one who picked up the phone, started listening to his story, and said, yeah, something doesn't feel right. So I started digging into this, uh, trying to figure out what was going on here. He, he hadn't had communications from Julia. I couldn't find any lawsuits filed. I called Wake County Courts. They looked. They did a statewide search for me to see if anything had been filed maybe up there because I figured, you know, the DOT in the state, they're based out of Wake, so maybe the lawsuit's there. Nothing. Couldn't find anything. So as far as we can tell, Julia never did anything after getting his additional $20,000. And to add insult to injury for Mr. Holyfield, uh, when I finally did reach out to Julia about this, she told me that she had retired from law in January of this year, 2021, meaning, and Holyfield told me he was never informed of that. He never was offered a refund, anything like that. Uh, So the way it looks to him and the way it looks to everybody else is Julia took his money, his $20,000, didn't tell him that she was retiring from law, and then just planned on keeping the money. I I think at the same time, it's worth pointing out that Earlier this year, in April, uh, Julie Bozeman was involved in an incident in Carolina Beach. Um, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on this, but we will have links to it on the page. But essentially, this was the Paradise Cove fire in Mm -hmm. Carolina Beach. 
And she told WCT, Alison Bozeman told WCT, that her involvement was because she was, uh, and I'm quoting here from the article, legally representing some of the fire victims. Yeah. I mean, am I wrong here? Does that suggest that she was still practicing law after January this year? Yeah, it, it certainly seems that way. Her bar license is still active, so she's still legally allowed to practice law. Yeah, there's definitely some questions as to whether or not she actually retired from law or is just saying that so people like Mr. Holyfield just say, oh, oh no, my money's gone. It's definitely a question we've had, and I've I've asked multiple, multiple times in several different ways as to, are you really retired and really can't get a clear answer, except she keeps saying, I am no longer actively practicing law. That's the latest she told me. She did tell me in the summer that uh, I retired as of January this year. And she did shutter her office. She did, yeah. Um, however, there's also another aspect of this that raised some eyebrows, and that's a February payout for the PPP loan for Julia Olson Bozeman Law Firm for salaries for $12,000. Now, she claims she retired in January. So if that's true, the PPP loan should be repaid because PPP loans are payroll protection. Basically, you promise not to lay off anybody and they'll uh, they'll forgive these loans. But if she retired in January, we have questions as to why she got this PPP loan in February. And they're not really supposed to be applied retroactively. Yeah, no, they're, they're definitely not supposed to be retroactive because, again, it's payroll protection for the future. Right. It's supposed to keep small businesses in business. Correct. Okay. So back to the main issue here. Mr. Holyfield has his own concerns, right? Mm-hmm. He, he wants the headstones for his... For his children, he wants the guardrails. Um, right now, that hasn't happened because the money hasn't been returned to him, and the lawsuit against the state to install the guardrails hasn't gone forward. So that's one part of the problem here. The other part is, you know, is there not an ethical problem here with the sitting chair of the county commission effectively, you know, what appears to be defrauding a client? And so that's the kind of behavior you don't want in your elected leaders. Yeah, it definitely is. And uh, Mr. Holyfield did file a ethics grievance with the North Carolina State Bar, which is actually a state-run organization. It's not the volunteer bar association that lawyers can join. Um, This is the organization that is tasked with regulating lawyers, making sure there's no ethical issues. Uh, And when they say you can be disbarred, this is what it means. This is the the entity that can take those sort of punitive actions. As a parallel, there's also, you know, a board of engineers, Mm -hmm. there's a board of dentistry, there's a board of, uh, you know, medical doctors, right? uh, All who have similar powers to basically uh, investigate people. um, And if necessary, they can censure them, they can reprimand them, they can restrict their licenses, or they can totally remove their licenses. Yeah, exactly. So where are things with that investigation? And I know this is not an easy question to answer. Yeah, it's not because all the information I am able to get has to come from Mr. Holyfield himself because he's the one that filed the complaint. The North Carolina State Bar will not acknowledge that they're even receiving complaints about lawyers. Um, You know, in theory, this is to protect lawyers from frivolous claims and to, you know, uh, not harm their reputations. Uh, It's understandable. Uh, but at the same time, when a, uh, as, as you and I were talking about before this, uh, before this recording, if a uh, doctor has been accused of malpractice or, uh, you know, putting people's lives in danger, uh, negligence, that sort of thing, it's something you would like to know about. And it's the same way with, you know, the, the hospital boards and stuff like that. Uh, if they're investigating doctors, attorneys, dentists, you don't know about 
any of it until the investigation is complete. And that's what the state bar has been telling me. I have uh, I have some correspondence from the bar to Mr. Holyfield saying they were investigating this. So we do know they're looking into it. They said they hope to have it done by December. It's December 1. We might know something by the end of this year. You know, I think this is a broader issue. I hope that we can come back to another time. But mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly in 2016 and 2017, we started seeing the state medical board come down on opioid prescribing doctors. And often in the, you know, findings of fact, because these um, reprimands and license, you know, suspensions, often they look exactly like court proceedings because it's effectively what they are. Mm-hmm. And it sort of lays out the history of the case. And often there were complaints, you know, dating back years. Right. Same for, you know, doctors who have been accused and then for all intents and purposes convicted. This is not a criminal court, but the allegations against them have been, you know, upheld by the medical board of, you know, uh, harassment or, or, you know, physical inappropriateness with, with patients going back years. And right. obviously there were the whole time that investigation was ongoing between the initial complaint and whenever this was finally published. And most of these are online. The, the NC bar and the medical association are both online. Clients, patients, they're in the dark. Yeah. So that's, that's a pretty big problem. But, but back to Julia Osen-Boseman. So, until the bar actually comes back with something, we won't know. But she, uh, although she told WCT she wouldn't talk to you anymore, uh, she did talk to you for this latest story. Yeah, that, that is true. She did tell me at a uh, county commissioner meeting where, uh, you know, I, I went up to her afterwards, asked her to talk about these allegations. She told me to never to t- contact her again. Um, I did contact her again. And uh, she sent me four or five bullet points. Uh, she can't really speak. And to be fair, I do understand attorney-client privilege, even if uh, that person is no longer retaining you as their attorney, uh, unless they give you ex- uh, explicit you know, permission to speak with me, which uh, for all I know, Mr. Holyfield hasn't, even though it's pretty much tacit agreement at this point after speaking with me himself, uh, she still is bound by those uh, attorney-client privilege, which is, uh, you know, you can look at it as a convenient excuse to not talk to me or, you know, uh, actual, you know, legitimate excuse. Uh, take it for what it's worth. Uh, she did issue four or five bullet points, basically said, I don't believe I ever acted inappropriately as a sign of good faith. I am offering to return Mr. Holyfield's $20,000 fee. Um, she has hired a, a law firm out of Raleigh that represents attorneys uh, one of their practices is attorney ethics, so they are, you know, versed in this. Um, they too were not really able to speak with me or give me anything of substance. They can't even say that she's retained them. I know that she has retained them because I have it in writing from one of these attorneys, and she was a, a little off put that I was uh, that I managed to get these emails. But again, a lot of people don't realize like just because you say it's privileged information doesn't stop the person from receiving it from forwarding it to the press. Right. It's not an NDA for the client. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Mr. Holyfield sh- uh, shared it with me that uh, Ms. Bozeman was trying to return this $20,000. And kind of where we're at today is, uh, as far as I know, as as far as time of recording this, uh, he has not accepted that money back. Uh, I don't necessarily think he's going to, you know, say no. I don't want this money back because obviously he wants his money. Uh, however, I I have spoken with him. He wants answers. He wants some accountability and, uh, you know, as, as he described it, some justice for what he perceives as this injustice as. Uh, Julia taking his money for about two years now. In February, it will be two years. 
um, since he hired her, and she hasn't even filed a, a case or anything like that. So as you mentioned before, um, and I am not a lawyer, he has mentioned the words fraud and theft and things like that. He did file a criminal case with WPD. WPD then kicked it down the road to the State Bureau of Investigation. I spoke with them. Uh, they basically said, we're aware of these complaints. We're not investigating it yet. Uh, through the grapevine and talking to some sources, uh, prosecutors and things like that, uh, it looks like the SBI and the DA um, are all waiting to see what the state bar comes back with. Once that investigation is complete, it's entirely possible that we will see some criminal charges brought against her if what she did meets the threshold of a crime, which I'm not saying it does. Uh, but if they determine it does, they will, you know, come forward with criminal charges. Right. So that's sort of where we are. The last thing I, I want to touch on is that this is actually that I know of at least the second law firm that uh, Julia Olson Bozeman has retained. She started with uh, Jim Lee, yes, uh, well-connected, powerful local attorney, and then moved to this Raleigh-based firm. Yeah, I really can't get into the speculation of why she's uh, why she's hiring multiple attorneys for this. Um, I, when this all started, it was Jim Lee representing her. I've reached out to him uh, again, asking about uh, something else about this case, and uh, I believe he just didn't respond to me. So I don't know how long he has or hasn't been representing her. Again, when you get into legal issues, representation, uh, attorneys are very limited on what they can say, which is probably for the best. Oh, yeah. Um, but it is it is difficult to track down. But we do know of at least now two law firms uh, that have been representing Ms. Bozeman in this case. Well, all right. This is obviously one we need to watch the bar. Uh, <laughs> not known for its expediency. Yeah. But I'm sure you'll be on it. So until then, Michael Pratt, thanks so much for coming to mind. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, after the break, we'll take a deep dive into the latest on True Colors. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockley. In this segment, we'll be talking about True Colors. And whether you're talking about the company's struggles as a startup brewery or the contentious nature of its social mission, that means talking about gangs and gang members. So it's worth taking time for an editor's note here right up at the top. Many of the employees of True Colors are self-professed gang members. But often when it comes to criminal proceedings, we hear about validated gang members. Gang validation is the process by which law enforcement agencies identify likely gang members based on a variety of criteria. It's not a criminal conviction. Some have criticized the gang validation process as violating due process, since there is not a simple judicial appeal process for people who are either not in gangs or who have left the gangs. Others have called the criteria way too broad or too vague and note that being in a gang is not in and of itself illegal. Okay. Now, whatever you think about gangs, it's clear there's no shortage of controversy around True Color's social mission, employing active gang members in an attempt to control street violence. And we'll get into some of the contention and criticism, especially in the wake of a recent shooting. But before we get to that, it's worth remembering that True Colors is, according to founder George Taylor, first and foremost, a for-profit company. So many might ask a company founded in 2017, what took so long to release your first line of beer? 
So that's what we asked True Colors CEO and founder George Taylor. Everyone says that, and it's true. But if you think about it, like, so the, the, the sort of spark occurred in roughly early 2016, let's call it. We, I then spent like two years just sort of being around gangs. Taylor often tells the origin story of True Colors. The shooting death of a 16-year-old shook Taylor out of his affluent white landfall lifestyle and set him on the path to start dealing with the city's gang violence problem. You know, 2018, we spent another year, once we decided we thought an economic opportunity would stop the, the violence, what does that look like? You know, how do you, how do you begin to put together a business plan where, I don't know, 80% of your team is street? For the next year and a half, Taylor put his staff through a boot camp program. Many of them, Taylor said, had never held a job beyond flipping burgers or bagging groceries. And there were setbacks. The company went through several brewers and other staff members. And there was the gang-related killing of 18-year-old Zaliax Johnson in February of 2019, which triggered a corporate reorganization. Johnson was a friend of several True Colors members, so the company's inability to save his life hit hard. Some lost faith in the mission, but Taylor was adamant that the business model wouldn't change, and he forged ahead. Towards the end of 2019, we thought we had it kind of figured out. Well, then we had to buy a building, and we had to build it out. Uh, We had to get all this equipment and engineering. It took us a year and a half to do that. Then, tragedy struck again. In July of this year, an apparently gang-related shooting at the home of Taylor's son, the company's COO, wounded one and killed two, including longtime True Colors leader Corydis or Corey Tyson. Taylor faced public criticism, but again said the business model would not change. Then there was, of course, also a global pandemic and the resulting supply chain issues. True Colors had been building up, aiming at becoming the region's largest brewery, and Taylor wanted to order a million cans from Ball, one of, if not the, world's largest producers of aluminum cans. When we first ordered cans, um, need to order a million cans, uh, call up Ball, not fully understanding the problem. And they said, well, we're really not taking any customers until 2023. I'm like, well, that's kind of going to be an issue. <laughs> so, With help from their investor, Molson Coors, True Colors was able to surmount the can shortage issue. But there was another problem. True Colors initially planned to roll out their beer around the 4th of July. But when they scaled up from smaller test batches to a full-sized run, the flavor was off. Like, way off. So anyway, the first batch of beer comes out and we're like, holy smoke, it doesn't taste right. A bad batch of beer on the eve of rollout would have flustered most brewers, but Taylor wasn't that concerned. He had a partner in New Orleans, basically a backup brewery. Then Taylor's plan B got hit by Hurricane Ida. Started brewing down in New Orleans and everything was going wonderfully. The beer is perfect. We got it all dialed in and the hurricane hit. Well, air beer was wiped out. On the warehouse floor of True Colors here in Wilmington, there's actually a pallet with thousands of cans that did make it out of New Orleans. But if Taylor can't get the right permits, he'll have to destroy those as well. I called called my pastor the next Monday. I said, I'm just waiting for the locusts to appear on Monday. I'm pretty sure they're coming. In the end, Taylor was able to pivot back to the Wilmington Brewery, located on Greenfield Street, and get back to work. Taylor eschewed bombastic stouts and hyper-hopped IPAs for the kind of beer he says the vast majority of Americans drink, a low-calorie lager called True Light that's now on shelves and on tap around the region. The goal, after all, is to build a national brand, to take his mission to as many people as possible, and eventually maybe let someone else pick up the mantle. We started True Colors to build a national brand and to have impact at scale on these issues that we care about, and we always knew that there's going to come an inflection point probably in a couple of years where we just don't have the horsepower to take it to that next level. And we're going to be looking for somebody to step in in a larger way. So 
So, True Colors has overcome numerous challenges in order to release its new beer line, but the company's social mission, hiring active gang members to try and prevent street violence, remains controversial. While True Colors doesn't require gang membership, Taylor admits none of his employees have ever shed their gang affiliation after being hired, and active membership is a key part of how Taylor says True Colors works. The most intense scrutiny of True Colors came this past summer. On the morning of July 24th, there was a shooting at the home of George Taylor's son, a top executive at True Colors. Um, anything you can tell us on the record? So, double homicide. Call came in, 540 at 911. Shots fired in the home. One victim was Cordy's Tyson, known as Corey, and described by the Taylors as a longtime friend and True Colors leader. And, like the majority of True Colors employees, he was an active gang member. The three men later arrested for his murder were reportedly affiliated with a rival gang. The other victim, Brianna Williams, wasn't affiliated with the company or gangs, and her family laid blame for her death on Taylor's policy of hiring active gang members. In the wake of the shooting, Sheriff Ed McMahon and District Attorney Ben David would also criticize True Colors. Here's David on the September 24th edition of the newsroom. Here's the problem with any business model that would allow you to say, we're going to find the good and praise it within this gang. You are 40 times more likely to be the victim of a homicide in America if you're the member of a gang. For years, Taylor has both called David a friend and cited him as an instrumental part of the company's origin story. But they're clearly split over Taylor's belief that if his employees stay actively affiliated with gangs, they can prevent street violence. So because they stay in the gangs, they have influence. And so if you believe the problem is economic, then you have two choices. You can hire every gang member in America not practical. You know, too many gang members in Wilmington for me to hire every one of them. Or you can hire those that you think have the most influence over stopping the violence on the street and then uh, teach them um, and grow them and raise them up so they can have further influence on the gang members in the street. And that's what we choose to do. It's always been hard to measure the success of True Colors. For one thing, there are a host of programs and organizations that claim they're moving the needle on gang violence. There's court diversion programs, nonprofit groups, and community policing efforts, just for a few examples. For another, it's difficult to prove a negative. True Colors is taking credit for the shootings that don't happen. So how do you measure a counterfactual here? Taylor argues one way to gauge True Colors' success is to look at gang-related shootings when retaliation would be expected. Let's just go with this year. We've had three gang-related shootings earlier this year. A good friend of mine got killed over on Nixon Street, then one in March, a guy got wounded, and then Corey in July. There was no retaliation on the first one at all, no retaliation on the second one. But after Corey Tyson was killed, Taylor admits True Colors was pushed to the limit and wasn't able to stop the violence completely. The third one with Corey was really, really hard. There were two ladies who were shot after that. I would consider that retaliation. It happened uh, like two days after it, I think. And we were trying our damnedest to shut that stuff down, and we missed on that. We just didn't, didn't do it. It's also hard to evaluate True Colors' work because Taylor's hesitant to go in-depth on what his team does for fear of compromising the relationships he's built. And I can't get into it because, like, that part of the issue is, like, we're able to do what we're able to do because of the trust that we have with the people that are involved on the street. And we don't talk about the good stuff we do. We don't talk about any of that stuff because it potentially could break trust and we would not be able to do that. For a long time, Taylor publicly talked about gang violence when law enforcement often shied away from it. In the wake of this summer shooting at New Hanover High School, that has started to change. But Taylor is skeptical about the county's plan to stand up a version of Durham's Bull City United based on the Cure Violence program out of Chicago. 
there's there's a there's a conversation right now going on in, in city government or county government about bringing in cure violence. It doesn't work. The problem is that they hire people who don't have the influence or the access to deal with the problem that they say they're dealing with, and they report into the government, often the police, and like that's just not going to work. Taylor argues that the county's reaction to the New Hanover High School shooting has more to do with where it happened than with the level of violence in Wilmington, while overlooking the role he says True Colors has had in reducing violent crime. He bristles at politicians who claim that the last year has been one of the most violent on record. There's a sense in our community that violence is up in 2021. In fact, you, you can talk to politicians and they'll tell you this is one of the most violent years ever. No. Total bullshit. Um, what has happened? Like, Last year was way worse, and the year before that was worse again. And, like, it's getting better. What we're doing is working. Um, the only thing that changed is that we had incidents in communities that didn't normally get them. We had an incident in a white middle-class community, upper-middle-class community, and we had an incident at New Hanover High School that has a lot of white students. That is the only thing that changed. Um, I talked to people in the hood, and they're like, are you kidding me? This shit's been going on for decades. So, despite the criticisms, Taylor has no plans to change his mission. And with the recent successful launch of the True Light beer line, he may even eye expansion. All right, well, that's just about all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. I want to thank my colleague Rachel Keith and her guest, Florence Warren, WECT reporter Michael Pratz, and True Colors founder George Taylor for agreeing to a long and candid interview. Thanks also to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.